all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Happy Christmas. Happy or Christmas. whatever. It could just be happy hi. I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. The Christmas miracle sode. I am so glad to be talking about something not horrible. Yes, I think both of us are. Yeah. And probably our audience too. Yes. I think so. Even though they do subscribe to a podcast called All Bad Things. Yes, they do. <laughs> Oh, rate, review, rescribe um, at All Bad Things Pod for Insta, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, join our discussion group on Facebook and email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com, especially if there's any research or requests. And we've been getting a lot of research lately, and yes. I am so grateful. Fire Thank away. you, Albot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much because um, we're about to enter tax season. <laughs> 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 and that's when Moira Rose comes out. <laughs> Moira Rose. <laughs> but what about the bebes? That's Moira Rose. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> You're really on tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what you drinking? I am having the very delicious um, Foothills. I, I was thinking Aviator <laughs> at first. It is Foothills, the Moravian Porter, which is delicious. Yes, the people, the people's porter... They're, well, it's technically the People's Moravian Porter. Yes. The People's Porter is a very good, solid porter from Foothills out of Winston-Salem, where we're going this weekend. Yes. Um, which is last weekend for everybody listening. <laughs> yes. Confusingly. Um, but uh, the Moravian Porter, they add a little bit of, like, cinnamon, I think. What do they say? They add... Uh, spices that have made Moravian cuisine a staple of holiday celebrations in our hometown. The Moravians, it's, it's like some sort of religious group, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like a sect of uh, Christians. Okay, something. Something like we that. We clearly know a lot yeah. about her, even though we've been to Old Salem a couple of times. Yeah. It, has, it has to do with the uh, the Moravian star, is like the yes. big symbol. Yes, which is like the multi-pointed little star. Anyway. Very excited because this is the first time we've seen this distributed because we've only had it at the brewery. At the tap room. Yeah. Yeah. During this time of year because it's just a seasonal beer. So very excited when we found this. And these are 22s. Yes. (laughs) We drink the whole fucking thing. (laughs) I'll tell you that. Well, we're spilling it on me. It's (laughs) It's not a good beer night unless I'm spilling on myself. So... Um, I didn't write a Christmas poem. That's okay. Because... I'm sure it took a while. And the, the one you did last year was excellent. I actually wrote it really quick last year, but I was just really exhausted today. I just came from finishing this research for three solid hours. Um, I wrote this over two days. It is ten fucking pages. <laughs> this is gonna be a long episode. We are in for it. Ten pages of research and eleven pages of pictures. So, do you have any... Oh, well, first... Well, no. No, I wrote it in there. Never mind. (laughs) 
<laughs> going back. All right. Rachel's going to be really punchy this episode, just so we know. Um, and then I'm going to drink 22 ounces of beer, so that'll help. Um, do, you have, <laughs> do you have any guesses on today's episode? I have no bad. idea. Okay. I will give you, you a hint. You haven't even... Oh, okay. I'll give you a hint now. Yes, you're right. I haven't given you any hints. It has something in common. Oh, it, it's okay. You can go ahead yeah, if you want. That's, that's okay. Right. Um, it has something in common with our most recent miracle sewed. Do you remember what our most recent miracle sewed was? Is that the the Jackson Four? No, no. Good guess. What, what was our most recent one? Um, Sully. Oh or yeah. Or rather, yeah. the Miracle on the Hudson. This miracle sode has someone in common. Tom Hanks. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> really? Portraying. Okay. A crucial person in this miracle sode. In the 1995 film, yes, sirs and ma'ams and non-binary friends, this is the story of Apollo 13. Uh, I was trying to think. Damn, like, you couldn't even think of it. I was really? like, what movie came out in 1995? <laughs> for me, it was it was a long time ago. Well, I mean, it was 24 years ago for yeah. anybody. Well, anybody who is uh, people who are three don't know what 24 years ago was. I hope people are not listening to us you never know <laughs> one of the parents could have it on in the background maybe but I, I do know somebody who listens to my favorite murder with their kids in the car there you go <laughs> all right so this is apollo 13 okay all right this is a biggie this is a hugey all right yes yeah, science <laughs> yes yeah, science so on april 17th 1970, as in the 50th anniversary, is coming up in a few months. Wow. Right? 1970 was almost 50 years ago? Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> does that make you nervous because you were born in the 70s? Yes, it does. Yes. <laughs> Apollo 13 landed in the South Pacific Ocean after an eventful week yeah, in outer to say space. The least. During which time, the crew of three on board came perilously close to becoming the first astronauts to die in space. Mm. So, sources. Yeah, sources. <laughs> NASA, of sure. course. Wikipedia, of course. Vintage Space, space.com. Did you know there was a space.com? That would make sense. Me. Yeah. The lunar. <laughs> That's probably one of the original ones. Like, <laughs> yes. Like, 19... uh -huh. like 1992. Exactly. Uh, the Lunar and Planetary Institute. America Space, NBC News, Gizmodo, BBC, Ars Technica, Newsweek, the IEEE. -E -E. I don't know what that is. I literally couldn't find out what it stood for. But anyway, Real Clear Science, Reddit, Explain Like I'm Five, specifically user Internet Boyfriend 666. There you go. <laughs> and SeanMunger.com. Don't know who Sean Munger is, but thanks, Sean. All right, so. Uh, ha, ha, happy holiday season to everyone. <laughs> oh, I'm just getting started. Oh, God. This is going to be interminable. Um, can't wait. <clears throat> yes. Uh, I'm. And if you don't celebrate holidays, cool. Just happy days to you. Hope everything is okay. I know this can be a depressing time of year for people. Can be. Hang in. You'll get through it. It's short. All right. I'm very glad to be covering this 
topic that ends well, especially after the tsunami episodes. Those were super fucking depressing. Um, Not only that, but this is one of my favorite stories, period, because I was actually hugely into Apollo 13 when it came out. I saw it like 20 times, asked for it for Christmas on VHS, you know? I was 10 when it came out. How old were you? 18. (laughs) (laughs) I had literally just graduated high school. Yeah. (laughs) Like a month before it came out. I I had just gone, I was about to go into the fifth grade. (laughs) There you go. It's a good thing we didn't meet until 20 some years later. Oh my gosh. Oh, so yes, I loved this film, which after researching this was shockingly accurate. Sure. I mean, dramatized. A little bit, yeah. But but they did a really good job. There wasn't really a whole lot they needed to uh, dramatize. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, and this episode is very specifically dedicated to our listener, Alex, uh, who suggested the topic and has been through like one hell of a year, mm-hmm. not to mention just she's been hit by a lot of shit in her I life love bullshit. and yeah that nobody should have to deal with we have a gofundme a link a link to her gofundme i should say on facebook i'll share, try to remember to share it on on twitter as well um so we don't have a patreon we don't do ads or anything like that so if you've ever wanted to financially support the show Instead, yeah, how about Port Alex yeah, instead? Exactly. There are people who are in much greater need than we are. We're super lucky, super privileged to be able to do this as a hobby. And um, we enjoy it very much for that reason. So, <laughs> just to explain, <laughs> you're switching to trying to switch to, over to a vape over cigarettes, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, that's so you might hear that sound occasionally. Yes. <laughs> not weed. No. It is not weed. It is actually just tobacco. Not this or one, nicotine. anyway. Yeah. Well, <laughs> your other one's quieter. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, also, just want to mention, I'm going to be telling this story like as any narrative in like a sequence, but it's important to remember that a lot of this stuff was actually happening simultaneously, especially when we get to the troubleshooting portion. Sure. Um, You're going to try to be as linear as possible. Yeah, but there was a lot of stuff going on simultaneously. So that was one of the, from what I saw online, one of the biggest criticisms. It was more like, we get why they couldn't do it this way. But kind of one of the criticisms of the film was that it made it seem all so sequential when it was really things happening at once. But you can't really portray that on film very well. And for the sake of narrative, it had to be, they did this, then they did this, and you know. Exactly. And that's that's why that's why they say based on a true story. Right. And not literally. Because if it was like the closest thing to a true story is a straight up documentary. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And even that has to be told that linearly. That has to be edited. And, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. So, yeah. So, if you haven't. So, there is no real life is what we're trying to do. <laughs> we're living in a post-truth world after all. So, if you haven't listened to our episode on the Apollo 1 fire. Which we covered oh, wow. a while yeah, back. Yeah, we did. That was a yeah. long time ago. Yep, we gave a pretty extensive uh, we background went deep on into NASA. NASA. Yeah, because it was something before that. Oh yes, it the or co- the administration. I don't yeah. know. I didn't go listen to it. I'm just suggesting other people do. <laughs> it's in the catalog. It's there. You have access. <laughs> you to listen it. to it and tell us what you think. <laughs> Find um, out all the NASA you want in that exactly. episode. Exactly. 
So we're actually going to just pick up after Apollo 1, after the fire. So just for quick reference, that fire was on January 27th, 1967. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're sort of picking up from. So interestingly, if you look at a list of the Apollo missions, after the tragedy of Apollo 1, you will not find Apollo 2 or Apollo 3. The next mission was Apollo 4. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I watched a little video about why that was. So here's why. It's because of the weirdness of NASA's naming of the missions, because they include both NASA internal names and then like the names they give to the press, like Apollo 1, Apollo 4, that sort of thing. So technically, the Apollo 1 mission was AS-204. That was like the internal name. Okay. The A stands for Apollo. The S stands for Saturn. Apollo is the actual spacecraft. The Saturn was the rocket used to launch it. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yep. And then 204 meant it was part of the 200 series of the Saturn rocket, the Saturn 1B. So it was like 201, 202, 203, 204 was Apollo 1. And even though Apollo 1, AS-204, never actually flew, right? Like, it, it was... There a fire happened during testing, so it never got off the ground. Unfortunately, it never flew. Exactly. But it was named Apollo 1 out of respect for the crew and by the request of the crew's widows. Hmm. They were like, can we acknowledge that they died for this series of missions, this moonshot, which we talked about in Apollo 1. Um, And NASA was like, sure. Yep, absolutely. They did the right thing and said yes. So that was Apollo 1. Um, But there would never be an Apollo 1 that actually made it to space because Apollo 1 was, the mission was done with the fire. So originally the idea was, of course, that Apollo 1 would be followed by Apollo 2, 3, blah, blah, blah. Um, Apollo 2 would be AS-205, right? And then Apollo 3 would either be AS-206 or AS-501 because at some point around that time they were going to upgrade the Saturn rocket to okay. the 5 series. So I know it's it's all super weird, but <clears throat> um, because of the fire, there was some question as to exactly how they wanted to proceed with their nomenclature, with naming the missions. Um, so aside from just proceeding like the next the next mission would be Apollo 2, 3, et cetera, et cetera. They did have the option to go back and retroactively name previous missions, which were all unmanned, by the way. Apollo 1 was the first manned mission in this um, moonshot. So specifically, they had the option of naming AS-201, Apollo 1A, 202, Apollo 2, and 203, Apollo 3. <laughs> so I know, I know. In the end, they did neither, kind of. So they didn't technically officially rename AS-201, 202, and 203, but they decided to just go ahead and continue as though they had. So they just decided that the next mission would be Apollo 4. I don't know. It's weird, but that's what they did. <clears throat> so Apollo 4 launched on November 9th, 1967, and was the first to launch that included the new Saturn V rocket. Okay. So this was, let's see, January to November. It was 10 months after the fire, mm-hmm. or a little shy of 10 months. 
And it was another unmanned mission. So I I didn't dive into like why they didn't go with a crew, but I imagine at least part of it was, hey, how about we do some more testing before we put they had, somebody Because they had in, just lost a crew yeah, the last time they tried. So. Yeah. Apollo 4 was the largest, like physically largest spacecraft to attempt spaceflight and was the first of what they called an all-up test. So it was kind of a revolutionary concept by NASA Administrator George Miller. So the idea was that instead of testing like one system at a time, so like just the Saturn rocket or just the lunar module, um, and tweaking one system at a time along subsequent tests, they were just going to launch the whole damn thing, hmm. like fully realized and see what happened. So that was that was kind of it was a risk. It was a big risk. But if it paid off, it would pay off by a lot less testing. Right. And some money saved, obviously. And it worked. The mission was considered a success. And a side note, they got some really amazing pictures. And here's where our pictures start. <laughs> our 11 pictures, pages of pictures start. So this is, this is a shot oh, aboard nice. the Apollo 4. That's a 1967 camera on a spacecraft, and that's the Earth. Mm-hmm. Like, I find that really amazing. And it's also, what it's doing is it's ejecting its uh, boosters. It's ejecting mm. the Saturn rockets. Okay, so. but isn't that really that cool? Is, that is Isn't amazing. that an amazing picture for 1967? I know, too bad it's just not real. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, you mean like with the truthers of uh, the moon landing or whatever? Mm. Uh. Just because something is something you can't figure out because you're not a scientist doesn't mean it didn't happen, just for the record. <laughs> well, my favorite, because I'll go into those... Uh, or whatever? I'll see some of that stuff on Twitter here and there. I'll never punch anything in i'm just there to witness like what is being said <laughs> stupidity it's pretty amazing because the, like the number one thing here is like yeah we haven't been back in like 40 years that means we've never gone it's like no what it means is you know how much money it costs to go to the moon That's exactly right and we have eight wars to fight right now we need that money for that so well we think we need that money we think so right not to, yeah i didn't want to make it sound like i was uh, being serious about that i gotcha but um, that is the reason why these missions are ridiculously expensive. It it's, and, it takes so much. Yeah. To do this, absolutely. Abs- I didn't even get into the cost of this. I totally missed out on that. But anyway, I, people are understand that we're talking billions of dollars oh, just for one mission. Yeah, at least I would think. So uh, um, after Apollo four, everything was sequential. <laughs> From there, no more skipped numbers. So Apollo five was another unmanned flight, and it launched in January of 1968, and it was specifically testing the lunar module. So that was what was being tested with that flight. It was also considered a success. Apollo 6 was launched on April 4th of the same year, so the tests are getting pretty close now because they're really ramping this up, right? The whole idea was, let's beat the Soviets to the moon, Mm -hmm. right? That was the whole idea of the moonshot essentially like the political motivation for it and that apollo 6 was the last of the unmanned test flights so they were gearing back up to put try to put people back in space so the apollo 6 purpose was mostly due had mostly to do with the saturn 5 launch vehicle and the shields of the command module standing up to re-entry into the earth's atmosphere right it gets super hot Super, super high. Oh, yeah. Entering back into the Earth's atmosphere. 
Um, I say I have a photo here. <laughs> you do have photos. I do, but, but is I it, don't is it a... No, this isn't... There's something I on don't the back have... there. Oh, I know. There's, these uh, are all photos. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that's it. I think I put an errant photo note there. Oh, well. Um, so there was an engine failure in Apollo 6 during uh, the flight, but they found the cause and they felt confident enough in the testing that had been done to date that they canceled an additional scheduled unmanned flight. So there was supposed to be another, one more unmanned flight. <clears throat> but they, saw, they felt so good about where they were that they decided that Apollo 7 would carry a crew. Okay. So they went from one, then had four, five, six unmanned, and then decided to, to man seven. So I don't know about you, but if you were asked to be on the crew of Apollo 7... After what happened to the last crew, I'd be a wee bit nervous. Just a tad. But but those those people, people who are willing to get throttled into space, they're a different ilk than I. Yeah, they're a different breed. <laughs> yes, exactly. But they're also largely, um, and we talked about this a lot in Apollo or the Apollo One fire. They're largely like former Navy test pilots and shit. Yeah, there are there. all these guys are former military mm-hmm. at this at this point. Mm-hmm. All Air Force and Navy, pretty much. And you do bring up a you bring up a good point in there um you said all these guys we are talking all men at this point this is the 60s in america and we're also talking all white at this point so this is a very white male story but it is what it is so (laughs) so that makes it less credible i did not say that i'm kidding did not say that okay of course you did not not say that (laughs) all right so um so they found, uh, for this mission, Commander Wally Shearer, Senior Pilot and Navigator Don Izell, and Pilot and Systems Engineer Walter Cunningham. So they were going to be the first in the Apollo, well, the hoped first in the Apollo missions to actually be launched into space. And they were on October 11th, 1968. Now, this was not a lunar mission. They were still testing out all of the the hardware, right? And software. So less so than a year was... from then, we actually went to the moon. Yeah, you're so... absolutely right. This was a cool... The, these were quick succession. Yeah, they, these, the turnaround times on these are... The yeah. R&D was very quick, yes. Um, so this was an Earth-orbiting mission, and they conducted medical and photographic experiments... And the crew did return home safely, fortunately. Unfortunately, during the space flight, they had all developed bad head colds. Okay. (laughs) More specifically, they developed bad head colds like almost immediately after liftoff. Mm. And so they spent most of the mission in, in, in pretty bad shape. Like they were not happy campers or happy astronauts. And that made them pretty and understandably cranky. To the point where they were actually pretty snippy with mission control, like a little sarcastic and snitty. Um, now, those working mission control included Jack Swagger and Deke Slayton, who we'll both get to. We'll get to both oh, of yes. these guys later. So we're we're going to have a lot of names come back up. So they got home, thankfully. Like they first of all, they were successfully launched into space, first time in the Apollo um, program that astronauts were successfully launched. They also made it back home safe, but it wasn't a great trip <laughs> for them. And my guess is just everybody was glad when it was over, including Probably. Mission Control, who was like, yeah. shut the fuck up. <laughs> We're doing science here. <laughs> um, one highlight from the mission, though, is that it was 
It featured the first telecast from space. Hmm. Isn't that pretty revolutionary for like 1968? It It was in black and white, obviously, and featured title cards because there wasn't any sound. So I think these pictures are just out of order is the issue. I think this might be... Yes, okay. Um, I think this was was from... you were trying to show me before. I think that's from Apollo 4. I think they got the first Earth picture. And again, isn't that gorgeous? It is. I think this was from Apollo 5 or 6. I don't know. <laughs> Guess I lost track of the photos. And then here's the little still. Keep those cards and letters coming in, folks. Isn't okay. <laughs> and in the meantime, they're all miserable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I mean, mean go, it, going to space at any given time, I'm sure, is not comfortable, but when, if, doing it 50 cold. years ago. Oh, and with a cold? Mm-hmm. I'm miserable on Earth when I have a cold. True. So. Apollo 8, which launched on December 21st, 1968, was the first one to actually get to the moon, although the mission was not to land, it was just to orbit the moon, right? But... That meant it went as far as any spacecraft had gone previously, which is a pretty big deal. And that flight gave us the first iconic Earthrise photo. Oh, so that's where that comes from. At least one of them. I mean, Mm -hmm. others were taken. Sure. But so you can see the surface of the moon and the Earth as though it were the moon in the background. That is crazy. Isn't that amazing? It's great Hollywood effects. (laughs) (laughs) A beautiful artistic rendering. Right. Uh, so the crew for Apollo 8 was Frank Borman, James Lovell. Okay. Jim Lovell, Jim Lovell. right? Uh-huh. And William Anders, who became the... Or Bill Anders, I think he went by. Who all became the first humans in history to literally fly to the moon. As well as the first humans to witness the far side of the moon. Ah. Which is also pretty damn cool. The backup crew was significant, too. It consisted of Neil Armstrong... Fred Hayes, and Edwin Buzz Aldrin, all three of which our names we'll get back to. Apollo 9 in March of 1969, the crew was James McDivitt, David Scott, and Russell Schweikart, who conducted rigorous testing of the lunar module, right? Because they're gearing up to actually land on the moon. Mm -hmm. So far, they haven't tried, but they're talking about like, okay, we need to make sure. They're trying to make sure if it's even possible. Right. This this lunar module is going to work. It was another low Earth orbit mission, so they didn't go to the moon. Um, But it did achieve its own milestones. It was the first time the lunar module was jettisoned. So, what's the word for that? Left of the spaceship? Propelled away? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Jettisoned. (laughs) And docked while manned and included a spacewalk by Schweikart. And here's his spacewalk. It's just so trippy. Like, that's outer space behind him. I know, that's crazy. That black in the background is just space. It reminds me of gravity. Like, that gravity, right? Yeah, waiting for a rock to go right through his head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately, that did not happen. Now, by this point, the Apollo program's really gaining steam, going very well. It's all successful missions, right? Um, 
And more importantly, everyone has made it back safely. Nobody's died. All successful missions yes. since the first one. Yes, exactly, exactly. By the time Apollo 10 launched in May of 69, so we had, um, this was March 69 mm-hmm. for nine. We had October 68 just to go to the moon. It's only like every two or three months. It's mm-hmm. really like really quick. they're close, closing in, yeah. By the time Apollo 10 launched in May 69, things were getting very exciting. Apollo 10 was essentially considered a dress rehearsal for the moon landing. Sure. It was they did everything but actually land on the moon. And that was deliberate. 11 was really going to be if all, everything went well with 10, 11 was going to be when they This is when we'll went do ahead it. and pulled the trigger. The crew was Thomas Stafford, John Young, and Eugene Cernan. And apparently, because they were doing everything but the actual landing, those at NASA were afraid that the crew might be like, well... Let's just do it. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know what they did? Fake. They deliberately didn't... And told the... They, they also told the crew this. Let's hope so. They deliberately did not put enough fuel in the ascent module, the part that they would get mm-hmm. them off the moon, so that they so would... That would if so they tried they wouldn't landing try on the moon... It. If they they basically told them if you try landing on the moon you're, you're gonna, never getting you're, out you're gonna stay there you're gonna stay there so they didn't try it <laughs> that would also be kind of cool too <sighs> a lot of these are like married men with kids that's that's true so I'm not so sure about that <laughs> still I would still I would have been tempted myself oh well bye bye then I yeah. guess no, I'm just <laughs> good saying. luck for me just saying if I was an astronaut in 1969 fair enough <clears throat> so the stage was set. For the most famous of the Apollo missions, Apollo 11, no longer a dress rehearsal, the crew successfully landed on the moon, leading to the iconic like flag planting and the one small step speech and all that. Um, so who was the crew aboard Apollo 11 pop quiz hotshot? It was, uh, well, it was Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin because they actually went on the moon. Who was the poor I guy can't... left on the... <laughs> yeah, I can't remember that guy's name. Nobody can and that's hor- that must feel horrible. Probably does. Or maybe it doesn't maybe, to him. Maybe he doesn't care. Michael Collins. Okay. I would yeah. not have been would able never to... Have yeah, it. I know. While literally every other Apollo mission had made Apollo 11 possible, it is, of course, the mission that gets the most glory. Sure. I mean, everybody involved was just as... They brought it across the goal line. Yeah. You know? They were the quarterbacks, Mm -hmm. or the receivers in that case. Running running backs. They were on offense. They were doing a... They weren't the punters. (laughs) They were doing a naked bootleg into the end zone. That is an actual play. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what's interesting for the purpose of our story is the backup crew of Apollo 11, which consisted of Jim Lovell, Bill Anders, and Fred Hayes. Now, just because America had achieved the moonshot, beat the Soviets to the moon, that didn't mean the Apollo missions were over. NASA had done had made enough Saturn V rockets for nine more launches. Wow. Right? And given the sunk costs in the program... Yeah. They're like gonna they're, make they're damn just, sure. Mm-hmm. They're like, we're gonna use those fucking rockets, all right? They're like, everybody's going. Who wants? Who's next? Yep. <laughs> so they decided to continue lunar exploration through Apollo twenty. So oh, did it get that high? Oh well, that we'll was the find out. I I understand. That was uh, that was the aim. Yes. Apollo twelve consisted of the second moon landing and more extensive surveying data gathering on the moon. The crew was Pete Conrad, Alan Bean, and Richard Gordon. Now, very cutely, 
When Pete Conrad, who is shorter than Neil Armstrong, stepped on the moon for the first time, he said, quote, Whoopee! Man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me! End quote. <laughs> supposedly... Henny Youngman, ladies and well, gentlemen. Well, supposedly, he had a bet with a reporter. He's like, no, I'll seriously say that. And he, he did, but the reporter never paid out. <laughs> Wow. And let me see what I've got. Here. That also just sounds like something a guy in 1969 would say. This is a picture oh, from. Oh, nice. It's a solar mm-hmm. eclipse. Or lunar. It's, solar. it's an eclipse. Yep. It's an eclipse of the heart. Eclipses these. <laughs> and so, we now come to the fateful Lucky 13, mm-hmm. Apollo 13. Uh, So like I said, NASA still continued with its plans to explore the moon, and they were intending for Apollo 13 to land near the Fra Mauro Mauro crater (laughs) on the moon. (laughs) You know that. That that one. one. (laughs) Uh, It was thought that samples from this site could actually give a unique insight into the history of the moon, like geological samples that could uh, tell interesting shit. Yeah. Well, like age, <laughs> yes, the type exactly, of exactly. If there are any bacteria, things like that. Right. Yeah. There you go. That sounded very intelligent. Thank yeah, you. You're welcome. <laughs> now they knew at this point that not only was it possible to get people safely to and from the moon, but they had done it twice successfully. So this would be the third time. So yay! So it was so, that's, so no problem. Then. Yeah. No. No big deal. And that's deal. the end of the story. <laughs> The end. <laughs> this has been another episode of whole that thing. <laughs> the director, yeah. The reason it's eight pages is because I wrote in gigantic font. <laughs> or ten pages. <laughs> anyway, the director of the flight crew operations was a man, na- a man named Donald Kent, or Deke Slayton, who I mentioned before, and who I got through like half the script before I realized he wasn't Ed Harris. Okay. But that's Deke Slayton. Oh. He does play an important role. I bet he does. He's, does he uh, look very 60s? Yes, he does. He's what? Uh, was he mission control? He was the director of flight operations. We're okay. going to tell you about a little bit about him. Um, you can tell like when I was earlier in the research and like gives background on everybody and then get <laughs> quicker in it anyway. So Deke was born in 1924. He was... A, th- Something to note is how young these people were involved yeah. in this. Mostly people like in their 30s and 40s. So anyway, uh, he was a pilot from way back. He flew, flew in World War II in the Army Air Corps. Then he followed that with a stint in the Air National Guard, then the Air Force. So basically air everything you can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he attended Air Force Test Pilot School. In the late 50s is when he decided to... Enter the space race, right? And get into outer space. And he applied to become one of the Mercury 7. Have you, had you ever heard of the Mercury 7? I had not. The Mercury uh, was the um, <clears throat> was the space program before Apollo, I believe. Yes, it was NASA's and indeed the United States' first human space flight program. Yeah. And he was one of the original seven astronauts chosen for this. Uh the original seven were him, Scott Carpenter, Gordon Cooper, John Glenn, the John Glenn, um, Gus Grissom, who was mm-hmm. one of the three who died in the Apollo 1 fire, Wally Shearer, and Alan Shepard. And we mentioned Wally Shearer before. He was in one of the Apollo missions. I forget which one. I'm not going to try to find it. 
time. I'm halfway through this 22. There's no chance of that. <laughs> um, oh, and here's the Mercury 7. I've got a little pick of them. Okay. There's a bunch of white men in hiked up pants. <laughs> yeah, that one. The, well, the one dude's pants. Well, no, two of them. Yeah, yeah there's all three a couple, right? This is, um, that's Deke in the orange okay. shirt there. But yeah. <laughs> Very and they're suave. all just like in their 30s or 40s, but yeah. they look like everyone's dad they, they do. back then, you know? They probably were somebody's dad back then. So the size and health criteria for the astronauts is super stringent. They're all within like a, like they couldn't be over 5'10". They couldn't weigh over 180. Like they're, it, because they were trying to keep people trying very light. Trying to smush them in there. Yeah. And not like tax the, the bounds of space flight, right? Um... So it was obviously very disappointing to Deke when he was diagnosed with idiopathic atrial fibrillation and irregular heart rhythm. Okay. So, so he's not going mm-mm. on any flight. He was grounded. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he, uh, as of the time of this disaster, uh, would never had never been in space. Hmm. Period. I, I don't think I ever got back to him. I think he did eventually go. Oh, okay. He, he worked really hard to fix his heart problem. Like, he stopped smoking. He worked out majorly. Like, he really wanted to go into space. And I think he did in the 70s. But anyway. <laughs> Sorry, apparently I was more interested in Deke early on than today. <laughs> so, Deke was also grounded by the Air Force, right? So, f- they found yeah. out this problem in Na- at NASA, but then the Air yeah, Force the got wind of it. could have a freaking so... heart attack in the sky. Exactly. Yeah. So he decided to retire from the Air Force in 63, but he decided to stay on at NASA and began working in the administrative arm. And initially he was sort of given an informal chief astronaut designation, but in 63 he began serving as the assistant director of flight crew operations. And in 66 he was promoted to director of flight crew operations, and one of his roles was choosing the crew. Of each Apollo mission. He was the uh, the staffing guy, which is a pretty big fucking deal when you're sure. deciding who's going to go get to walk on the moon, right? Now, obviously, he had more than a little guilt regarding the Apollo 1 fire, uh, especially the death of Gus Grissom, who he knew from his Mercury 7 days and was a really good friend of his. Prior to the fire, um, Deke had even considered being inside the module, the test module, under the footrests to facilitate communication. Like, he was thinking about actually, like, crouching down there. And as you'll recall, the fire started under the footrest. Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah, so God. he had some shit to deal with. Yeah. Now, there was a sort of standard crew rotation that DQs during the Apollo missions. And according to that rotation, the next astronauts up to be the primary crew for Apollo 13 were Gordon Cooper, Don Izell, and Edgar Mitchell. So not the guys who ended up there. Deke decided not to follow the standard rotation for Apollo 13 because he had some issues with Cooper and with Izell. So as I mentioned, Cooper, the name Gordon Cooper might sound familiar because he was one of the Mercury 7 along with Deke. And uh, Deke had observed Cooper when he was training in NASA's Gemini program and he thought Cooper was a bit of a heel dragger when it came to training. In other words, he wasn't a diligent trainer. And these guys have to train sure. like ridiculously, yes. <clears throat> and Deke didn't want to have to deal with that. Uh, he had, uh, Cooper had 
previously been assigned to the Apollo 10 backup crew by Deke, but even then Deke was pretty hesitant to do that. So he just wasn't cool with Cooper. As for Izel, he had been one of those unlucky sick astronauts aboard Apollo 7 Mm -hmm. who got snippy with mission control. And as you'll recall, one of the people they got snippy with was Deke Slayton in mission control. So that didn't help their relationship. But Izel was also raising a lot of eyebrows at NASA for his extracurricular activities, namely his affair with a woman named Susie Mm. whilst he was a married man. And if revealed to the public, this could cause a serious black eye for the Apollo program, right? They had to have like a squeaky clean image or whatever. But from what I read, divorce was not uncommon, nor were (laughs) um, affairs in this demographic of individuals. I mean, they're doing high risk shit. They're going to be high-risk individuals, probably. A lot of them. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not accusing all of them of that, but I'm not accusing anybody. And so, Deke bucked his own staffing protocol. He had problems with two-thirds of the crew, so he's like, yeah, no, never mind. So he, he, his first choice for Apollo 13 was a crew of Alan Shepard, Stuart Rusa, and Edgar Mitchell. And Edgar Mitchell was the one guy along with the other two that Deke didn't like, who was actually up next for the Apollo 13 rotation. Shepard, however, was a little bit rusty, to say the least. He hadn't flown since 1961. Wow, okay. But notably, That's... he was the first American to travel into space. Yes, so he was. was a, it was a big name, but he hadn't flown since then. He had been grounded in 1963 due to Meniere's disease. So side note, I actually recently spoke to a client who was telling me that she had Meniere's disease, and it sounds awful. So it's an inner ear disorder Mm -hmm. that makes you nauseous and get vertigo. And it's just, it's miserable. Yeah, I'm sure it is. From what I understand. But think about this. Imagine being an astronaut with fucking vertigo and nausea. Well, yeah, imagine imagine taking off on a rocket. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And that's why he was grounded. On a rocket, rather, not inside <laughs> <Right>? of one. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, but yeah, you'd probably get vertigo and what was the other thing? Nausea. Nausea like, pretty quickly, yeah. I would think. So it basically made For his own fun. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not. Yeah. It basically made it impossible. Now, he actually got a surgical procedure in 1969 that effectively cured his symptoms. But despite that, NASA management would not okay him for flying on Apollo 13. So Deke had to look elsewhere for his crew. So he settled on two of the backup crew for Apollo 11, Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes, as well as Ken Mattingly, who himself had backed up the original backup crew member of Bill Anders. So the original 11 backup crew was Lovell, Anders, and Hayes. Mm -hmm. Mattingly was... Anders backup. Okay. Also, Anders was getting ready to retire, so they just kind of swapped him out. So the commander of Apollo 13, Jim Lovell, portrayed by Tom Hanks in the movie, was 42. Your age. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I've accomplished so much more in my life, though. So, hey, did Jim so Lovell record 129 episodes of a podcast? I don't think, I don't he, think he did. So. No. Did. Did he fly twice in space? <laughs> Maybe, but... <laughs> well, I guess I'll give him that one. <laughs> he was a retired Navy captain, uh, Navy pilot captain. Pilot captain. 
Well, yeah, Navy pilot versus boat, whatever. And he was uh, also a backup crew member for the Gemini missions. He did fly in Gemini 7. In 1965 and Gemini 12 and 66. Oh, Gemini was the name of the program before, not Mercury. I think it was Mercury, then Gemini. Was it? Maybe. No, something. Eh. Anyway. Go listen to the Apollo Yes, go listen to that one. <laughs> um, and he flew in Gemini 12 with future moonwalker Buzz Aldrin. So he knew Buzz. All these guys knew each other. And then future, future moonwalker Michael Jackson. <laughs> You're so silly. <laughs> I did put Moonwalker. I did actually write Moonwalker. Yes, you did. Um, Fred Hayes, portrayed by the unfortunately late Bill Paxton, may he rest in peace, uh, was the lunar module pilot. He was 36. He's the youngest uh, who actually ended up aboard Apollo 13 and a former fighter pilot in both the Marines and the Air Force. And he had never flown in space before. Ken Mattingly, Gary Sinise, portrayed him was 34. Wow. I know. And a former Navy man. And this would be his first space flight as well. So that's why Lovell was the commander, right? Because he was... He'd been there He'd before. been there a couple times. And backup crew and, and such. So he was he was the most experienced one. Now, the Apollo 13 backup crew consisted of John Young, Jack Swaggart, or Swaggart. It's, Swaggart. It's, it's S-W-I-G. It's spelled like Swiggart, yeah, but it's but Swaggart. pronounced Swaggart. Yeah. And Charles Duke. The primary crew each spent over 400 hours in the training module, and all six of the primary and backup crew members trained in the same module. So, that means they all spent time in close proximity, sharing germs and whatnot, and this would soon become very important when, one week before the scheduled launch date of Apollo 13, Charles Duke came down with rubella, also known as German measles. Get your fucking vaccines, people. Um, To be fair, apparently the vaccine for rubella didn't come out until 1969, but apparently Charles Duke wasn't up on getting his kids this new vaccine because one of his kids had it. His little snot-nosed kid. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. You'd think they'd want to keep the astronauts' families like in check too. Who well, knows? It's the sixties. Who knows? Like everybody's got yeah. diseases. Whatever. But basically, get your measles, measles, mumps, rubella. <laughs> measles. <laughs> measles, mumps, rubella vaccination. <laughs> measles sounds like a cartoon we should measles. create. <laughs> measles. So obviously, <laughs> measles. Uh, okay. <laughs> That just hit your little funny bone, didn't it? Did. it? Yes. <clears throat> so obviously that meant Duke couldn't fly. He had the meebles. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were gonna do that. <laughs> but he was just just, I guess, on the backup crew, but his little germs were smeared all over the training modules. So um the re- of the remaining so basically anyone who was an adult at that point likely would have had German measles when they were a kid. Like, my mom had rubella when she was a kid. She had whooping cough, all that shit, because they didn't regularly vaccinate back then. They hadn't developed those vaccines until a bit later. So everyone... That's why there's been so much more autism since then. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, if you believe that shit, people, listen to another fucking podcast. You're you're a fucking idiot. I'm sorry, but... God, herd immunity is a thing. It works vaccinate your fucking children and yourself um 
But and get your pets spayed and neutered. <laughs> Help control the pet population. Get your pets spayed or neutered. Anyway, of the remaining five astronauts, the other two backup crew and the three primary crew, they had all had German measles as kids, except for Gary Sinise, right? Uh, except for Ken Mattingly. Ken Mattingly. Yes. Except for Gary. <laughs> Gary Sinise might not have. Oh, maybe. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, so not one to. So here's the thing. Ken Mattingly was not showing symptoms of rubella, but they were like, look, dude, we can't risk you coming down with fucking German measles in outer space. Look what happened to the fuckers who had a head cold. They ended up like snipping at us. We're not going to risk you getting full blown measles. If you guys get the measles up there, we're just going to leave you. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to be like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, shutting See if we down, help you. Shutting down all communication. <laughs> So for poor Ken Mattingly, like he was grounded. He couldn't he couldn't fly. And they portray this all on <laughs> Apollo 13. What? Nothing. Well, so how is that funny? It isn't. It's just the meebles. <laughs> the meebles. <laughs> um the way I wrote it was not wanting to risk him potentially getting sick in space, Ken was grounded, thanks to Duke's snotty nosed, unvaccinated kid. There you go. Vaccinate your children. <laughs> So two days before launch, two fucking days, Jack Swaggart got the news. And if you believe Apollo 13, it was while he was in the shower with a, a lady. Um, well, why wouldn't he have been? Well, maybe. He got the news that he would be taking over. What? Nothing. For Mattingly. What? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> oh, why wouldn't he have been in the shower? I don't know. With a lady. He was 38 years old and a former fighter pilot in the Air National Guard. And this was also his first flight. So here's our little crew. We have um, Jack Swaggart, uh, Jim Lovell, and Fred Hayes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And none of them look like Kevin Bacon, Tom Hanks, or uh, <laughs> uh, Bill, Bill Paxton. Paxton. No. No. It's not that horribly far off, though. It's not like they went with people that looked nothing like them. That's true. Like, uh, well, yeah, the they kind of did, oh. but, but well, anyway. I mean, it's hard to cast exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, as depicted in the film, I'm going to reference the film multiple times, obviously. I already have. America was... She, she had the VHS people. <laughs> I did. I, and the movie poster, I think. Or I think I asked for the movie poster for Christmas. Anyway, I loved that movie as a kid. America was not super enamored with the moon landings in April of 1970. After all, Apollo 13 would be the third moon landing. So like, oh, big Boring. Love. Boring. We have the attention span of a fruit fly collectively as americans well also this is this is also kind of when vietnam takes a turn for the worse bingo america had some other distractions right yes including vietnam this is just at the end of the 60s right major political shit's already weird yes Uh uh-huh very much like how it is today yeah it was was pretty wild the 70s were amazing uh, the Manson murders had happened in August of that year. So I think that maybe the trials were going on anyway. Um, and the Beatles had broken up, <laughs> which was portrayed in the film. Yes, Not it was. only that, but the uh, Paul McCartney officially announced the band had split April 10th, 1970. The launch was on the 11th. Oh. So, I mean, they really were eclipsed by other, yeah, other news stories. Later, Jim Lovell would recall that, quote, 
The only mention of Apollo 13 in the New York Times was on the weather page about 97 pages in. Oh, wow. Can you imagine how insulting that would be? Well, like, we're fucking risking our lives, people, for because, science. Because any space thing has probably been front page news the entire decade. Yes. And I guess, well, in a sense, that shows you how successful the program was. If it just be kind of comes, oh, well. No routine. We're, we it's just, gonna work. We just do that now. Yep, we just like, go, we to, just the go to the moon. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. So nevertheless, the three crew members of Apollo 13, also known as SA-508, that was the internal NASA designation, entered the spacecraft on April 11th, 1970. Uh, liftoff was planned for 2.13 p.m. Eastern time, local time from Cape Canaveral in Florida. A little hiccup did occur during preparation to launch when one engine shut down a couple of minutes early as a shutdown safety measure when it experienced a type of vibration known as pogo os- oscillation. <laughs> I could have gotten into that. I did not. <laughs> it would have been 12 pages long. But the remaining engines compensated, and it was determined it wasn't a big deal, and it wasn't for the purposes of our story. That didn't really come back into play. And Apollo 13 set out on its course to outer space, and it was scheduled to take three days to get to the moon. So the space, this spacecraft, like all the Apollos, consisted of a service module, which kept all the fuel, oxygen, water, propulsion system, etc., um, and, and the command module, the mothership, right? And the lunar module, which is the part that would actually land on the moon. Lovell chose to the call sign Aquarius for the lunar module and Odyssey for the command module. Okay. The call signs. Apollo 13 was supposed to make what was known as a hybrid trajectory to for its um, path around the moon or to the moon and back. Uh, and Apollo 12 had used a hybrid trajectory as well. So basically, and this is incredibly simplistic terms, sometimes spacecraft use what's, call, what's called a free return trajectory, which is using the gravity um, of the bodies that it's orbiting. So like the moon and or the earth. Uh, to, like, propel the spacecraft sure. versus using actual propulsion, right? Or at least much propulsion. A hybrid trajectory, at least in the case of Apollo 13, uses gravity to a point, but then uses propulsion. So that's the hybrid, right? Part propulsion, part free return. So for this reason, about 30 hours into the flight, the crew performed an engine burn. Now, I know this may come as a shock to everybody, but I am not a rocket scientist. <laughs> it, I, I just play one in a podcast. <laughs> I took so long trying to figure out what an engine burn is. It was a little ridiculous. But what I think it means, after way too much research and trying to figure it out, I think it means that fuel and oxidizers, so basically, like, what, what does a fire need? Oxygen, oxygen, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, or it's it can't one of the burn. main sources it needs. Exactly, and there's no oxygen in space. There's not, right? So they had to, like, they had to take up with them the oxygen to burn the fuel, or to give the fuel the ability to combust. Um, so, which can be dangerous. Well, it can be. You're correct. So then, engine burn is like getting that oxygen into the fuel to allow it to burn, which creates the propulsion. I think that's what it means. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. So, anyway, from and what I can tell... here's a special guest, Jim Lovell, to, to, <laughs> to, to break it down. Jim, you're 91. <laughs> he actually is. But, is um, he still alive? He is, yeah. Wow, okay. Oh, spoiler alert. 
Um, that's, well, people know that. Yes, but I, I end the whole thing oh, okay. talking about the... But anyway, yes, he's 91 and still alive. Wow. Happy, yeah. Happy life, Jim. Yeah, no kidding. I was going to say happy birthday, but I don't think it's his birthday. Anyway. Um, so from what I can tell, they used this hyper trajectory to reach the specific point on the moon they wanted to go to, right? Uh, from Maro. So um, a little tax prep anecdote here. <laughs> but this is actually in the movie, too. Jack Swaggart panicked on communications when he... Do you remember this? When he realized he hadn't filed his tax return? Which was due April 15th. I guess I missed that. And he was going to be... <laughs> I remember this part. He he was... Uh, the, the Obviously, this was April 11th, so he was still going to be in space on April 15th. And ended up the IRS gave him a 60-day extension for being, quote, out of the country. <laughs> for being... They gave him an uh, they gave him an extension on his return for being quote out of this world. <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> they still kind of used the transatlantic accent back in the late sixties. I think they did. Not, I think they not were too much. Walter Cronkite was kind of the voice of nineteen seventy. I think. Did he come on the? Yeah, he, yeah, was, he was on. That's yeah, right. He, he did this thing, but he mm-hmm. was still kind of new. Was he? Yeah, I think okay. so. Or maybe so. not. Who knows. <laughs> We don't know what we're talking it about. It would have just been better if he would if he had done his career in a transatlantic <laughs> accent. <laughs> we're not hard-hitting journalists, people. All right. At any rate, the rest of the first few days of the Apollo 13 flight actually went pretty uneventfully to the point where <laughs> Gene Kranz... Did I talk about Gene Kranz yet? I believe you mentioned him. No, I didn't. Sure you did. No, I didn't. I don't remember. I talk about Deke Slayton <laughs> shit. I didn't... <laughs> That okay, could, could, sorry. I, I come back to Gene Kranz in a minute, but in v- very soon. Oh, God, this is a really hard one to get the sequence right. Anyway, Gene Kranz, who we'll talk about in a minute, said to Jim Lovell, quote, we're bored to tears down here, end quote. So, like, basically, not, everything's normal. Um, and then he cursed them. I'm, I mean, what I'm saying is, like, he gave them bad luck because he said, ah, everything's so boring. I'm not making much sense. Let's move on. <laughs> so they brought, they did broadcast from space. Like, and they also depict this in the film, right? Do you remember that? They do, that? yes. And Hayes was like hamming it up for the camera. And, but very sadly, no one was really interested. Yeah, they were saying like the news wasn't picking it up in, no. in most of the country. Marilyn Lovell, Jim's wife, had to go to NASA to watch the broadcast because they wouldn't show it on TV. Ah. And I was like, we're, we're just playing the Mary Tyler Moore show this or whatever. boring. Like, tell us when you're at Saturn. <laughs> yeah. Or Mars. Right. We've done this twice already. It's old hat. Whatever. So, yeah. Marilyn Lovell, like, brought their two daughters to, like, watch him on the broadcast at NASA. They couldn't even watch him on TV, which is really sad. Until a couple days later, which we'll get to. Yeah. yeah. The non-broadcasted broadcast lasted 49 minutes, and Lovell ended it by saying, quote, This is the crew of Apollo 13 wishing everybody there a nice evening, and we're just about ready to close out our inspection of Aquarius and get back for a pleasant evening in Odyssey. Good night, end quote. And this was April 13th, 1970. Obviously, people had already been all weird about, like, Oh, it's 13, 13. Was it Friday 13? the 13th? It was Monday the 13th. Oh, so no, okay. I it's looked no it up. Deal. Yeah. On the ground as the lead flight director for the mission was Gene Kranz. Now we'll introduce Gene Kranz, who was played by the inimitable Ed Harris during the film. Yeah, Ed Harris can easily pull this guy off. Oh, yeah. Because Ed Harris looks like a guy from the... 
Ed Harris probably still looked like this during this era. <laughs> he has always looked Ed Harris, the same. Ed Harris was 78 years old in, 19, in 1970. <laughs> Ed Harris was born 78 years no, old. No, he was, he was born at 45. Oh, okay. And he only ages one year every five years. Okay, so, is so that how it works? So he's like 150 now, <laughs> something like that. So Gene Kranz and his team, who were problematically dubbed the white team. I thought you were going to say the squad. That would have been kind of funny. Why would the squad be funny? Because the squad right now is an all-female uh, membership in Congress. You know. Oh, AOC. oh, oh, I get it. The quad. Yeah, the, yes. the, the quad. The quad. <laughs> the squad. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. It just would have been funny <laughs> if, they have if, if four white guys <laughs> in 1970 were called the squad. Well, no, we're not talking about four guys. We're talking about all mission control. This well, is a them. big team, so yeah. yeah. And they were all on duty. At the time of this broadcast. And Kranz had also been flight director during the Apollo 1 fire. So he had mm. some some history, right? And here's... And some PTSD, probably. Yeah. Here's mission control during the flight. You can see Hayes there. Look at the size of that TV. That was that was probably <laughs> the biggest television in the world probably, at that point. Probably, yeah. They had the, the biggest... Um, it's well, NASA. If you look, I mean, that's pretty revolutionary. That they is they a, had the that is a biggest... Computer. Yeah. Um, the biggest isn't the word. The, the most advanced technology yes, they for did. this time. Absolutely. So. Even more, even more than those damn Soviets. <laughs> well, we won't know because it's all like secret and hidden and That's classified. True. So shortly after the broadcast, which was approximately 56 hours into the flight and about 210,000 miles away That's from insane. Earth. Can you imagine? No. I can't. Thinking to yourself, holy shit, I'm hundreds of thousands away, miles away from the Earth. From my, from my home planet. <laughs> Not my hometown. Well, that too, I guess. But, I feel uh, like part of me would just be panicking the entire time. Oh, I wouldn't. Yeah, of course. Actually, all of me would be panicking. Yeah. That's why I'm that, not that's an why astronaut. They, that's why they haven't sent us to space exactly. yet. <laughs> so, like 200,000 miles away from Earth... In the spacecraft, a pressure sensor in one of the oxygen tanks seemed to be malfunctioning. Seemed to be malfunctioning. When he goes to stir the tanks, I believe. Well, normally the oxygen tanks were mixed once a day, which helped to ensure the pressure readings were more accurate. So mission control's like, hey, this pressure sensor seems a little off. Let's, Let's do another stirring. Let's try to reset this thing, you know. Um, so they told Swagger, like, mm, go ahead, just, just stir the tanks. Exactly like you said. So Swagger did. And then came a loud bang. And when you're up in space 210,000 miles. The last fucking thing you, you ever want to hear. You want to hear a bang. I don't want to hear that at work. No, I don't want to hear that anywhere. And I'm not, not, and I'm not in outer space. Right? I hear that shit at work all the time. It still freaks me out. Yeah, absolutely. Here and there. Because some, some, something will all of a sudden just go, boom. Mm. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, it's just the building rotting away again. <laughs> but yeah, if I heard that in space. Oh my God. Freak out. <sighs> Need your freak out. No, thanks. And then warning lights and alarms yes, came yes, on. Yes, no. Another no. thing you don't want to see or hear in space. Swaggart reported to Mission Control, quote, okay, Houston, we've had a problem here, end quote. So that was the first of the uh, misquotes of the Houston. (laughs) Yes. It sounds better as a Houston, we've got a problem. And it's also Swaggart 
This isn't Lovell. This That's is true. Tom Hanks. Although, to be fair, about a minute later, Lovell did echo. He said, quote, uh, Houston, we've had a problem. But the correct quote is, we've had a problem. Not we have a problem, but we have had a problem. Anyway, uh, that's all being very picky. Over the next few minutes, more, more warning lights came on, indicating two of the three fuel cells, which provide the spacecraft with electricity, had gone kaput. Further, one of the oxygen tanks, tank two, was showing completely empty, and tank one was quickly depleting. Now to review um oxygen is necessary for propulsion and for oh breathing just to mention and the well in this case i think of equal importance is the electricity because you're need you're gonna need to turn things on to get back to earth well plus you need oxygen for propulsion true and to stay alive and yeah Yeah. this just Mm -hmm. this is why they give them suicide tablets Just in case something like (laughs) this happens. So the crew and mission control worked to troubleshoot and problem solve. At first, when they heard the bang, Lovell and Swaggart thought that Hayes was playing a prank on them. Because he was a bit of a a, um, prankster. He definitely wasn't. Also keep in mind, okay, they're not in a space shuttle. The space shuttle had not been invented yet. No, yeah. They're in this little capsule thing. They're in the command module, correct. Which is mm-hmm. probably the size of this room. It's not that big. Yeah. Com- comparatively, yeah. It's not It's not a space shuttle. That's for damn sure. No, no. Uh, the crew initially was like, hey, did we get hit by a meteor? But they, they ruled that out pretty quickly. Um, about 13 minutes after... So this, this went on for a bit. About 13 minutes after the initial explosion... And they're, and they're communicating with Mission Control this whole sure. time, obviously. But Lovell looked out of the left window and reported a worrying sight. He said, quote, we are venting something out into the into space. It was the oxygen, wasn't it? Quote. Uh, it? He said it's a gas of some sort. Oh, okay. Um, I actually didn't look into what it was. I think the implication was, yes, it was oxygen, but I, I'm not positive. So, but regardless, nothing leaking out of a spacecraft is okay. <laughs> nothing happening is okay Mm-mm. at all. Nothing is okay in space. Further, the oxygen in tank one was continuing to lose pressure. And once it lost too much pressure, there would be no more oxygen, no mm-hmm. more fuel, no more breathing, no more no go. More nothing. And these guys would die in space. Mm-hmm. And that had not happened at this point. So, because we did cover yes, the we only did. time it did. The Soyuz. 11, Which was I think. three years later? After yeah, this? it was very soon after, like within a few years. I yeah. think you're right, yeah. Um, oh, God. Oh, fuck all mm-hmm. this. So according to Gene Kranz, at that point, everyone at both Mission Control and in the crew came, uh, realized that the moon was out of the question. Their mission had turned into get them home. They're not even sure if they're going to be able to do that. Well, that was the that was the problem. Yeah, they're sure as hell not going to the moon. Mm-mm. No, that was that was pretty clear right away. So just shy of an hour after the explosion, like this took a bit to kind of figure out what was going on. They made a couple of very important decisions. So first, as everyone had come to realize, there was no going to the moon. They just needed to get these guys home. So their first thought was, of course, abort. Right? Just turn around and head home. Period. End of. Right? Uh, But this was not considered a feasible option because it would demand a lot of power 
from the already dwindled reserves, which we'll get to a little bit more in in a minute. And it was also possible that the explosion could have damaged the service propulsion system, the way they made the spacecraft go um to the uh, propel (laughs) to a point where it couldn't even complete the abort maneuver so instead gene kranz made the final call he was like you know what we're gonna have to do with you guys you're gonna have to take the long way home so basically since apollo 13 was already on its way to the moon and it was actually at this point a lot closer to the moon than to the earth it would keep going that way circle around the far side of the room, of the moon and head back to Earth. It had to use the moon's orbit as a source of energy. Well, it, that's the free return propulsion, mm-hmm. right? Now, some or trajectory, something to keep in mind, and I didn't even think about this, and this is one of the trillions of reasons I'm not a rocket scientist. We're not talking about a static Earth and a static moon. We're, they're both- they move. Yes, they're moving <laughs> all over the fucking place. And rotating and shit. They're doing this. <laughs> you can't see my motions, but you can. <laughs> All right, anyway, it, it's the amount of calculations and thought, and they didn't, what, what's the famous quote that they, um, they had less, um, like, computation power than we have on our iPhones the, the now? The smartphone, yeah. Yeah, it, it's... It's amazing that they were smart enough to figure this out. Anyway. Like it it took up like a mainframe computer back at that time took up like a whole room. Yes. And and, and punch cards and and shit. And had like and could store like a megabit. (laughs) Basically. Basically. I mean there were no gigs were completely out of the question. And now we're in like terabytes and shit. Yeah. Yeah. So so they decided okay look you're going to go all the way around the moon and then come back again. But... Another thing that they decided, the second important decision, was that it was determined that the normal propulsion system, the service propulsion system, couldn't be used, like I said, because it, one, it was possibly irreparably, oh, I already went into this. See, this is another. (laughs) It's okay. I did a terrible job organizing this. Anyway, we already talked about that. So, because that wasn't an option, the SPS wasn't an option, it was determined that any required propulsion would have to come from the Lunar Module's Descent Propulsion System, or DPS. What are you laughing at? No, it's just... It's like my little... Am I doing Donald Trump motions? I'm sorry, that's awful. (laughs) Unintentionally, that's what makes it so funny. The Lunar Module's Descent Propulsion System... Um, it's the greatest. Anyway. <laughs> it's the best propulsion system. <laughs> anyway. Brr, it was. <laughs> the thing is about the lunar module's descent propulsion system is that its purpose was to make the lunar module land on the moon, not propel it through space to get astronauts home. Like, basically, they're like, shit, we're going to have to make this gonna, thing do we're something have to make a new, it's not supposed uh, to. We're going to have to make a new SOP on this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, the procedures they had to bang out, in it case, was ridiculous. In case this thing doesn't go to the moon, we're going to use it as a propulsion system. It was ridiculous. So, yeah, yeah, that's what they... <laughs> yeah, it was. this thing was not built with the intention to power it to get back to Earth at all. In fact... The lunar module was never even designed to get back to Earth. That's true. They just leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. They just leave it on the moon. So if I were on mission in mission control, this would be my reaction. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't mean to say they leave the lunar module on the on the moon. That's incorrect as well. It does they, it does go back and they dock, dock up. It, yeah. Yes. Uh huh. But, but it they leave it. They leave it behind. Junk, right? Yes. Yeah. They leave it behind before they re-enter yeah. atmosphere. So another important decision. So many decisions to make here. Yeah. Just a, just a few. Yeah. Very quickly. A few hundred thousand within mm-hmm. like a couple of seconds. Right. So within like an hour of all this, they made another important decision. It was clear that the crew could not stay in the Odyssey in the command module to go back home because the oxygen was quickly running out. So they they couldn't stay there. Both mission control and the crew came to the same conclusion, one that had been a backup plan in case of an emergency like this. The best chance the astronauts had was to abandon Odyssey and use the lunar module Aquarius as a lifeboat, right? Makes sense. To help them get home. So the astronauts acted quickly to power down the Odyssey and power up Aquarius because Aquarius wasn't supposed to be like turned on (laughs) until they were going to land on the moon, right? that, That was its purpose. They evaluated what consumables needed to be taken with them to the lunar module, right? Because the lunar module wasn't supposed to be sustaining people for an extended period of time. The command module was. Now, one of these extremely important provisions was water. And Jack Swagger used drinking bags to fill up water. It said from the tap. So I guess they had an actual tap on board. I don't know. Anyway, this is already 10 pages. I didn't look into that. And then they also had to transfer data from the computers aboard the Odyssey to the Aquarius in an age well before Wi-Fi, USB drives, smartphones, no, this satellites. Is all, this it's, is all being done manually. They literally, and this is also depicted in the film, Swagger was calling out numbers. Oh, yeah. Here, the, the, <laughs> long, the, the long form, longhand And math. they were literally yes. writing, using a chart to convert shit. And then just like in the movie, level like talk to mission control and they're like can you check my math here like this is a little pressure and i would like to make sure i'm doing this right and then all the people checking his math were also doing it long-handed mm-hmm. there were no fucking calculators well there were but, there were, but, but they weren't trusted mm-hmm. enough to you know this is just bonkers yeah, it is oh my god they're literally doing trigonometry and like chaos math on the fly <laughs> They're so fucking smart. They're yeah. really fucking they're smart like, people. It's amazing. Like, oh, I got it. It's a uh, the answer is a uh, three. I think it was more like, holy shit! I better get this fucking right. Yeah, that was the second choice. Yeah. And then the third choice was blue. <laughs> blue minus six. <laughs> blue minus meebles. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you were drinking. I shouldn't have said that. So. The crew of three transferred from the Odyssey to the Aquarius. Within a couple of hours, the lunar module engine burn was completed. So remember, they had decided that they were going to need to use the DPS. Mm -hmm. The lunar module, um, and they went ahead and burned, did one burn to return it to... It was a sick burn, though. (laughs) (laughs) We have to get through this. To the free return trajectory, sending Apollo 13 toward the far side of the moon. The estimated timeline for getting them back to Earth was four days, and the projected landing site was the Indian Ocean, which we actually talked about last week in a much worse context. Yes, we did. 
the flight dynamics officers at NASA did not like this plan. They were like, look, this is going to take too long and they're going to end up in the Indian Ocean. We don't have much, like the recovery crews, the people who go and get them out of the middle of the ocean. Big damn ocean. Well, Well, it's not a matter of size. It's that they just didn't have personnel in the Indian Ocean. They were like, we need to land them in the Pacific Ocean. Oh, okay. So, so they didn't like it. So the decision was made to burn the DPS again um, once Apollo 13 was about two hours past its closest positioning to the moon. And this would shave off a total of an estimated 12 hours of travel time and land Apollo 13 in the Pacific Ocean instead of the, the Indian Ocean. I think I like that plan better. So, yep, that, that was the decision they made. So back in the Aquarius, the lunar module was smaller than the command module because it was only designed to carry two people. It was not meant for the whole crew, right? Because one guy is going to stay in the mm-hmm. command module. The other two are going to go to the moon. So it was a bit of a squeeze for three fully grown men. And much more press- pressing than cramped quarters was the fact that the lunar module itself and... Uh, not just its propulsion system, was designed to land on the moon, not to transfer the entire crew all the way back to Earth, right? So this brought up several immediate additional obstacles to be overcome. The most pressing issue became very clear within the first few hours of entering the Aquarius. The lunar module was only meant for landing on the moon in that part of the mission and maxed out at providing 45 hours of Carbon dioxide filtration oh, for two right. people. That's right. Because you're breathing mm-hmm. out the whole time in an enclosed space. That carbon dioxide has to get filtered out of the air. And the filtration system would only last for 45 hours for two guys. There were three guys in there for three days, 36 days. That math did not compute. 36 hours, you mean? Thir- sorry. <laughs> it's not 36 days. That would be a little ridiculous. Fortunately for them, it did not take that long. So, otherwise, if they couldn't fix this issue, these guys could asphyxiate. They were going to die. Asphyxiate. Like, very badly die before, like, and have no chance of anything, right? And would indeed die in space. Now, the crew had brought filters from the Odyssey. Remember when they were grabbing the consumables and bringing it into uh, the Aquarius? Mm Mm-hmm. But these filters were a different size from the ones used in the Aquarius and, oh, also square, (laughs) while the ones in the Aquarius were round. And that is where the famous square peg in a round hole scene, one of the best scenes in Apollo 13. We have to get this to fit in a hole meant for this using only these things. And they, like, fling out all this stuff. It's like, do it. Yes. So the crew systems division, full of NASA's engineers, quite literally America's best and brightest. I mean, we're talking literal rocket scientists here, came up with an entire written procedure within 24 hours to do exactly that. It involved duct tape, plastic bags, hoses from spacesuits, two socks, and a bungee cord that created like a cardboard box looking thing that they called the mailbox. And here is a picture of the actual mailbox. <laughs> it's <laughs> actually very thing. neat looking. It, it is. Look at, it that, looks, look at that duct tape. It's in perfect. But grid it looks form. like uh, it looks like something from Star Wars. As <laughs> it well. does a little bit. <laughs> but literally everything I mentioned were the only things they used. 
Well, that's they probably gave him. They're like, this is what they have. Mm-hmm. Try to make try to MacGyver this shit the best way you can. I love that it included a pair of socks. Yes, that's two amazing. pairs of socks. Mm-mm, two socks. Oh, so one pair. one pair. Mm-hmm. True. <laughs> so. The crew was walked through the procedure over the course of an hour. It took an hour to build it, and it worked, which is just amazing to me. And what might be one of the most famous hacks ever, right? The crew system division saved the three astronauts from fucking asphyxiating on their own carbon dioxide. That's astounding to me. That alone is just amazing. But that wasn't the only peril. That was just like one of a thousand things. There were two other major, major concerns. Power and water. There wasn't much of either. So Hayes ran calculations that the water that they had would run out several hours before they reached Earth, which was not good because they needed water not just for drinking, but for the cooling system. Mm. So they weren't the only ones... consuming this water and so they immediately restricted water and power once inside the aquarius they rationed drinking water to 0.2 liters per astronaut per day which is like basically nothing you can survive without food a lot longer than you can survive without water yes. right so and that led to severe dehydration over the next few days for these guys Hayes ended up with a UTI a mm. urinary tract infection full-blown fever everything if you remember good thing, that, good thing that that was the worst thing he wound up with. right yeah I, if you remember in the movie they showed him like starting to shiver and yes. not be in great shape yeah that actually happened and then the limited electricity now we're talking limited as in 300 watts of electricity. That's like five 60-watt light bulbs. Yeah, that's nothing. That's like an average light bulb or light lamp light bulb, right? That meant things got very cold and very dark inside the lunar module with temperatures dipping as low as 38 degrees Fahrenheit or 3 degrees Celsius. It was basically a freezer they were stuck in. Furthermore, Swaggart's feet had gotten wet while he was filling all those bags filled with water. Mm. So he had wet feet in 38 Mm. degrees. Like, that must have just been absolutely miserable. There was also massive amounts of condensation. So it was wet. It was just, like, wet and uncomfortable and cold. And they were too cold to eat or sleep. And then to add insult to injury... They couldn't even throw their urine out of the spacecraft for fear that it would mess with the trajectory. So there were literally... Now, granted, they weren't drinking much, so they probably weren't peeing much. But there were bags of their own pee floating around in the spacecraft. It was just like, how shitty can this whole situation Which they probably get? hung on to at some point being like, we might have to drink this. Well, I, I don't know. Further, they couldn't use the water to add to their freeze-dried food, so they mostly ate, like, really shitty snacks like peanuts and cubes of bread. Okay. So, uh, now, in spite of these nearly unbearable conditions, the crew basically didn't complain. They remained very stoic. Now, I don't know. You you know my hangriness. (laughs) (laughs) I had a feeling that was coming. You know what I get like sometimes, right? I do. I get hangry. So the next time, so the next time that happens, I'll just put you on a spaceship <laughs> in the middle, in the middle of outer space. And be, like, be like, see, it could be worse, and now it is. <laughs> I just, it's an amazing, like these guys' fortitude and grit. Oh I mean, yeah. Granted, it's also a matter of survival. Yes. But you can survive and be really pissy too. Yeah. 
but they weren't. No, there's like, I mean, like we've always said with astronauts, you know, they're they're the best of the best. But if you think about it too, can I hope they talked a little shit about the Apollo Seven guys who got head colds and were all snitty. <laughs> They're like, hey, fuckers, we did all this and never complained. You complained because of a fucking head cold. Fuckers. Fuckers. Fuck you. <laughs> I, I don't really care. I'm not really that, that mad at them. But anyway. I'm not that mad at them. Just a little. <laughs> but just to note, now, in, in the movie, they portray Ken Mattingly, Gary Sinise, mm-hmm. as kind of being like a one-man, I'm-gonna-figure-it-out renegade. He did help, sure. but as one of the engineers. Yeah. Like, he, he was no more involved than anybody else. It wasn't just him. I mean, not to belittle Ken Mattingly. He obviously helped, but it wasn't... It was for dramatic effect. Um, also, it's true that Mattingly never got the measles. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah right. poor guy. So... If America didn't care about Apollo 13 because it wasn't an interesting enough mission, that changed real fucking fast once it got out that they were in trouble. Uh, This was the first time that a a space mission was going horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. The Apollo 1 fire, it all happened on the ground. So this is the first time there was like a real danger of, holy shit, Americans could literally die in space thousands of miles Literally. away. Yes, thousands of miles of way, away from the Earth. So the three astronauts thought to themselves about their families back home, but refused to talk to each other about it. They were like, we are going to stay focused. It was like a tacit understanding. They each decided we're going to stay focused on the task at hand. We're not going to let ourselves get too far into thinking about our families. We'll get distracted. Um, the families were informed about their loved one's predicament, and soon they and the rest of the country were paying close attention to the news, following programs like the Huntley Brinkley Report for updates, and Cronkite and everybody else that was around in 1970. On the evening of April 14th, the Apollo 13 crew disappeared behind the moon for mm-hmm. 25 minutes. The three astronauts were able to to see their originally intended destination and took pictures. At the time of the mission, the moon was at a particularly extremely far point in its orbit around the Earth. And due to this peculiarity, the Apollo 13 set a world record that still stands. The crew of Apollo 13 achieved the highest absolute altitude attained by a crewed spacecraft. Wow. It still stands today. Okay. 248,655 miles or 400,171 kilometers away from Earth, which is terrifying. They were almost 250,000 miles away from our planet. That's crazy. It's, it's, oh my God. I don't want to drive like more than 200 miles. <laughs> I mean, really, at this point. I have point. driven across the country and that was only 3,000 miles. So it's, oh my God. About 24 hours after the initial explosion, the second previously planned uh, DPS burn was performed. 
Now, both of the DPS burns wound up being so precise that there was actually very little course correction required. So it like that worked out about as well as it could have. Now, of course, there was still the matter of re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and splashing down, which could not be done in the lunar module. It was absolutely not going to work. They were going to have to go back to the Odyssey, hmm. the command module. But of course, the Odyssey had been powered down. So they had to do something that had never been done before. They had to recharge the command module and try to start it back up. And that was something that nobody was even sure was possible, technically possible or would work. And there was no procedure for that. And the crew is especially nervous about this part of the plan. Hayes said, quote, that was one of the things that worried me most, <laughs> end quote. Of all just, the things. Just, just one of the things. You know, we had been through all this shit. I had a Carbon UTI. monoxide. Uh, uh, power, gonna die. But this worried left me in the space. most. <laughs> so another procedure was written. Again, something they weren't sure was going to work. And they read it to the crew. A full 100 36 hours into this mission and about 80 hours after the explosion. When they followed the procedure, it successfully powered back up the Odyssey, getting ready for final re-entry. So fucking worked. I cannot Jeez, imagine I mean, the size of relief. Because if it doesn't work, then guess what? We are S O L. Not coming home. Oh my God. So during re-entry procedures, the service module was jettisoned. That was part of the reentry procedures. That was normal. The crew was able to take pictures of the damage to the module, validating the choice to use the DPS. You see all oh that shit? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. It's they just like a picture. hole blown on the side of it. You can just see it just looks like somebody mm-hmm. wrenched away that whole panel. It looks like the uh, the creature from the Twilight Zone yes, the movie. Yes, you're right. On the airplane. It does. Uh, exposing the stuff on the wing. Maybe that happened. Oh yes, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it's it was gonna cover up the whole time. I'm sure it, it was. It was a guy in a bear suit or whatever. From you're thinking of the movie. I'm thinking of the old show. But yes. anyway, <laughs> the guy in the bear suit. You've seen the old. I have. Right. It, it's it is it's just a guy terrible. in like a little cuddly bear He's suit. Like, it's so funny. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're so soft. So the Aquarius, the lunar module, would also need to be jettisoned after the crew returned to the Odyssey for re-entry within the Earth's atmosphere when it would disintegrate and fall into the ocean. So that was the plan. That was that was cool. However, there was one little concern regarding the Aquarius. I did not know this, and I don't remember this from the movie. Aboard the Aquarius was a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. In other words, there was a nuclear device aboard the Aquarius. Yes. This device was meant to be left on the surface of the moon to provide power to the other scientific devices left on the moon for taking readings and stuff. Um, But the Aquarius never made it to the moon. So now here was... They still got it. They basically, they they kept calling it, in the articles I read, a cask. So okay. it's not like it was a bomb or anything. It no. was just storage, right? It was meant to be powered, nuclear powered. It was nuclear power. powered. Mm-hmm. Of almost four kilograms of plutonium which, was aboard. Which, which, at that, uh, which at that point was probably worth like a billion dollars. Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't even know. Isn't that what Doc Brown was trying to get? Plutonium, plutonium yes. Plutonium, yeah. I almost said Doc Martin. Doc- <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sure in 1985, you can get plutonium in every corner drugstore. But in 1955, Marty, it's a little hard to come by. Oh, so in the original Back to the Future is older or farther away it is than it was from yes. the very much so yeah it's like almost 35 years as well as 30 the events this is what i was thinking about right when you started with this is what it's the topic's going to be mm-hmm. the actual event to the movie is almost as old as from the movie You're to right. now right <laughs> They did the movie 25 years. It's been 20 it's been a little over 24 oh years. Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. 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 <laughs> wow. Holy shit. And oh, and we're we're so about to wrap old. up the second decade of the 2000s. Mm. I'm uh, turning 35 in 2 days. <laughs> I'm starting middle Me too. age. No, you aren't. <laughs> You'll always be 8 years older than me and that will always make me feel better. Good. Oh, sweet. Okay, I guess I should continue telling this story. Yeah, we might as we might as well. We might as well continue Ah, telling the story. All right, so they had a device containing plutonium aboard the Aquarius, and the Atomic Energy Commission was scared about this. Because here's what was going to happen to the Aquarius once it was jettisoned. It would be jettisoned inside the Earth's atmosphere, which means it would tumble into the ocean, disintegrate and tumble into the ocean, Mm -hmm. including the plutonium. Mm -hmm. So the, the Atomic Energy Commission voiced its concerns to NASA, like, hey, we're a little concerned about this. And encouraged that they do one more engine burn just to make sure that they jettison the Aquarius far enough out that it wouldn't be anywhere near people. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, NASA wasn't super thrilled about Hell this. Hell no. They're like, look. They're like, we've got to conserve all the power we got. Well, there's, yeah, there's a couple of things. First of all, they were like, look, we're already pretty confident in our calculations, which have proven pretty good so far, right? That this shit is going to land deep in the Pacific Ocean. You don't have to worry in the first place. The cask thing is like really fucking sturdy, like to the point yeah. where it can it can withstand disintegration and the whole thing. It's going to be all right. Third, any time, any more, anything is putting this crew in jeopardy. Like, this could end really badly for these three guys. We don't like this. But they did it anyway. <laughs> plus, plus, they're like, plus, they're like, if the plutonium cask doesn't land in the ocean, it just lands in some village in Afghanistan somewhere oh and kills a thousand people, nobody's going to know about that anyway. Well, we're it's just going to do it years later, so I'm, I'm not doing it It's worth all. three astronauts. Jeez. No, that's, that's one of... They had a long-form math for that, too, for that <laughs> scenario. Well, basically, unfortunately, in America, it's um, one American life is worth approximately, oh, a billion non-white people's lives. We're really I don't know about a billion. A lot. Maybe like 500 million, something like half of that. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, that's a good value. Yeah. So they gave in. And uh, even though later, some people at NASA was like, that was really a bad call. We put the crew at unnecessary risk. Fortunately, everyone was okay. It did not harm the crew. Um, and the Aquarius was successfully jettisoned. It broke over the broke up over the southwestern Pacific. And the nuclear device, this 
cask of plutonium fell into the Tonga Trench, the deepest point on the Earth in the Southern Hemisphere. There you go. And it is still there. It's monitored, and supposedly it has never leaked. That's good. For now. <laughs> yes. And, and when it does, I would like to see the, uh, the, the aquatic life that comes from that thing. Exactly. <laughs> you know, hopefully it'll, it'll like morph into some gigantic creature that'll just come up on land and eat us all. Well, no, I'm not hoping for that. I don't think anybody else is either. I hope for the annihilation of the human species. <laughs> you know that, though. Sure, you are a nihilist. nihilist. Thank you. All right. So the the now now the Odyssey is on its own, hurtling towards Earth, and its communications blacked out. Now this is normal. During re-entry, it's caused by the extreme heat surrounding a spacecraft during re-entry. It interferes with radio signals. And usually this lasts around four minutes. Remember, they've done this a bunch of times at this point. Lasts about four minutes. You know, everybody's a little on edge, but okay, we know we've got to hang in for four minutes. Well, Apollo 13 was entering the Earth's atmosphere at a, like a shallower angle. And because of that, the re-entry phase took a little bit longer Mm. they were out for six minutes and you can imagine everybody watching at mission control and on tv were like okay there goes the four minutes shit 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 yeah you're shitting your pants absolutely and that six minutes probably felt like six days i can't i can't even imagine but of course this is a miracle sode and we know what happens odyssey was able to re-establish radio contact before splashing down in the middle of the south pacific now so it was kind of off American Samoa, which is kind of off of Australia, but really we're talking the middle. The Pacific Ocean is gigantic. Yes, it is. And it was basically in the middle of that. Um, The crew had been on board Apollo 13 for 142 hours and 54 minutes at the time of splashdown on April 17th, 1970, six days after the inauspicious beginning of their mission. And here is... The splashdown. Mm-hmm. You see their little, mm-hmm. their little uh, parachutes. parachutes open. The uh, the USS Iwo Jima, who recovered them, were only about three miles away from them, so they were very Good. close, fortunately. And there's everybody all happy at Mission Control, all firing lighting up, up cigars. the cigars because we're smoking inside a government building because it's 1970 and we don't give a shit. We'll all die of cancer. So yeah, <laughs> that was really unnecessarily <laughs> dark. I don't know why I said that. Anyway. So they were recovered, but the crew was recovered by the USS Iwo Jima. Everyone was okay, even though poor Fred, poor Fred Hayes, poor Fred Hayes and his meebles. <laughs> no, poor Fred Hayes still had a severe UTI, which I cannot imagine was very comfortable. I, well, I'm not going to get into it anyway. It was not comfortable. It required treatment, but but he was okay. You can recover from a UTI, whatever. They were taken to American Samoa and then to Hawaii, where they were met by President Nixon, who immediately awarded them the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I mean, we're talking two days after they splashed down. The president was like, here you go. Here's a medal. Here's a medal. Just take all the fucking medals. Further, on his way to Hawaii, uh, Nixon had made a stop in Houston and awarded the medal to the entire Mission Control team. Mm Mm-hmm. 
for the Apollo 13 missions operation team. One of the few times he wasn't a giant asshole. (laughs) Well, he actually wanted to give it to the NASA administrator, and the administrator was like, no, give it to those guys, which is the right call. Mm -hmm. Absolute right call. So, oh my God, we're almost done. (laughs) And so is my beer. (laughs) So, what the fuck happens aboard Apollo 13? Motherfucker, what the fuck? Motherfucker, what the fuck? So, it almost killed three American astronauts. So clearly they were going to need to know what happened. So that was the question that NASA was asking. Motherfucker, what the fuck? And a review board was immediately convened. Neil Armstrong was one of the members on Mm, that review board, by the way. Their conclusion was reported on June 15th, 1970. So they came to a conclusion very quickly. And it was pretty obvious it was the number two oxygen tank aboard Apollo 13 that had failed. When Swaggart was instructed to stir the tanks... There was a short circuit caused by damaged insulation on wires for the the stirring fan mm-hmm. that sparked, caught the fire, caused the explosion. The shock incapacitated two fuel cells and caused the leak in oxygen tank number one. Mm. So that was the, the basic gist of it. But then the question was, well, why did this short, right? Um, what was the damage to the insulation wires? Well, let's keep going back. They followed the manufacturing path of oxygen tank number two, which was made by Beach Aircraft Company, which was a subcontractor of one of NASA's contractors, North American Rockwell, who's primarily responsible for uh, manufacturing the command module. Right. I used to work at a company that was a subcontractor. Yes, you did. Yep. And the way that company was run, it's a wonder. I'm not going to go any farther because I signed an NDA. In 1965, (laughs) before the first Apollo spacecraft was even built, the original design included a 28-volt power system. Now, while it was still in the design phase for Apollo, they decided to upgrade it to 65 volts. But that revision was never made by Beach. Mm. So they were making 28-volt components for a 65-volt system. Strike one against Apollo, right? Now, this ill-fated oxygen tank was originally supposed to be on board Apollo 10, the dress rehearsal mission, right, for Mm -hmm. the first moon landing. The component that the the tank was actually loaded onto was removed from Apollo 10 to address a potential electromagnetic interference issue. And so it didn't end up on that mission. However, while it was being removed from Apollo 10, it was dropped. Now, just a couple inches, just a little boom, or whatever. It was a very minor accident, and they didn't see any damage. What they couldn't see is that it damaged a bent, a vent pipe on tank two. It was not visible, but it did happen. So the, that tank was eventually installed aboard Apollo 13. Mm. Now, of course... So that's strike two. Now, of course, massive number of tests are done prior to launch, including the oxygen tanks. And that test was conducted on March 16th, 1970. So like a month before Apollo 13's launch. And it was called a countdown demonstration test. The tank filled just fine, but it wouldn't drain because of the bent pipe that nobody could see. Um, NASA and North American Rockwell discussed the issue for a number of days And then they came back to the tank on March 27th and they decided, okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's turn on the heaters in the tank to empty it. So the heaters uh, turn the liquid 
oxygen into gas, and that would empty out of the tank, was the idea. So they left this to be done overnight. Now, in order to regulate the heat inside the tank to prevent overheating, there was a thermostat inside the tank to monitor the temperature to cycle the heater on and off, right? So that it didn't get too hot, just like any thermostat. However, I literally wrote however, the power running into the tank was operating at 65 volts, but the circuits in the tank were designed for 28. It ended up blowing out the thermostat. So the thermostat couldn't regulate anything. The heater never cycled off and it burned through the insulation and the wires. Mm. And that's how the insulation was damaged. Strike three. And all anyone saw at NASA the next day was an empty tank because the emptying part worked. They just didn't know what was going on inside this tank. So when Swaggart went to switch on the fan in the tank to stir it, there was the short, the fire, and the explosion. So mm. that's what caused this whole thing. It's kind of a chain reaction of happens not happenstance entirely just like little shit that got away from them now thankfully for everyone involved in future apollo missions the oxygen tank saw redesign that fixed the mismatched voltage issue thank you because this could happen with any of those missions and future missions included an additional oxygen tank, so like an auxiliary oxygen tank. Some wiring was also insulated with stainless steel. Like, this shit's not going to burn away. Because <laughs> uh, they were using Teflon. That's what had gotten mm, burned with yeah. the previous. Monitoring systems were also upgraded, and an emergency water supply was stored in the command module. Like, hey, in case we need to do this lifeboat thing again, here's some more water. In case of any future need to use the lunar module as a lifeboat, an emergency battery was added to the service module to facilitate transferring power from the command module to the lunar module to help. So they were fixing the power problem and the water problem. Mm -hmm. I didn't read anything about the carbon monoxide filtration system, but hopefully they matched the fucking filters after that. I don't know. I'm guessing so. Yeah. Now, the three astronauts aboard Apollo 13 were obviously national heroes, Much to their surprise, because they basically were just focusing on surviving for three solid days. Then they splashed down, and now it's like, here's President Nixon. Oh, hi, Mm -hmm. Mr. President. You know. The Apollo program continued on with Apollo 14, 15, 16, and 17, all of which successfully landed on the moon and returned all astronauts home safely. There was supposed to be an Apollo 18, 19, and 20, but NASA's focus shifted from the moon landings and NASA experienced budget cuts as well as some other shit. And so all three were canceled and that ended the Apollo space program um, with Apollo 17, which splashed back down on December 19th, my birthday, 1972, 12 years before I was born. No humans have traveled outside of low earth orbit since. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I did not know that. Know Everyone's that. like the ISS and all that stuff. That's all just lower sure. orbit. Wow. Mm-hmm. I've actually seen the ISS orbit one time. Oh, really? Like yes. you could physically view it? Well, me and... To the naked eye? Or yes. did you have a... Oh, wow. Me and, me and Chad saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is at my old place. This is before mm-hmm. we knew each other. There was just this thing that like came across the sky like really fast. 
How and, far uh, away? Like, how big was it? How big was uh, it was big enough. It was, like, bigger than, like, a star. And it was moving. Oh, okay. Like, you could tell it was a... Okay. You could tell it was moving on its own. Mm-hmm. And Chad was like, I bet that's the, the ISS. And he had, like, some space app, because he has all that stuff uh-huh. on his phone. And, like, pulled it up, and it's like... Oh, wow. It's like, yeah, it was just above us. That's amazing. Yeah. That's pretty cool. But that's that's what low Earth orbit mm-hmm. is. It's it's not outside no. in outer space. They're basically using the, the Earth's gravity yes. and we talked about that during mm-hmm. the another uh, challenger, the other one. Columbia. Columbia, thank you. <laughs> I was not gonna be able to come up with that. That was a very early that was like that our was seventh or eighth mm-hmm. podcast. That was an early one. <laughs> so if you want to learn more about NASA, go deep we, into the we've catalog. We've done a fair amount of space. We've done yeah. every space disaster except for one. That will, that will be coming at some point. Yeah, well, yeah. Who knows when? Well, um, 35 years will be not next year, but the following year. Mm-hmm. 2021, so wow. maybe. I know. I'll be here before 2021. You know what? Jesus Christ, I know. <laughs> so Jim Lovell, what? as I mentioned, <laughs> is still alive at age 91. He never went went back into space, period. Yeah, he's a buddy. I, I bet he didn't. <laughs> cannot blame him. He was he like, re- that was good enough. Yeah. He retired from both the Navy and the space program in 1973, and he ended up being a businessman in Houston. Sure. Sea level. Um, he co-wrote a book published in 1994 called Lost Moon, The Perilous, Voy- Perilous Voyage of Apollo 13, and that was used as the basis for Ron Howard's 1995 film, Apollo 13. Uh, he initially wanted Kevin Costner to play him. Uh-huh. He said he looked more like Kevin Costner. Hold on. Uh, let's see. Let me come back. That next one. There we go. That's him. Yeah, a little he bit. Does look a Much little. more so than Tom Hanks. Yeah, a little bit more so than Tom Hanks. You're right about that. Can you imagine Kevin Costner in that role, though? Not oh, God, Tom he's Hanks. just a shit actor. <laughs> <laughs> and he would have had to have hook it, hooked up with one of his buddies in space because for some reason, Kevin Costner can't not have a needs romantic. somebody to hook up with Kathleen in every movie. Quinlan yes. played Marilyn. Huh? In um, Apollo 13, she played Jim Lovell's Oh, movie. okay. Well, Didn't she had a moment. She wasn't moments. in space hooking up with Kevin Costner. No, not in space. But like when we watched that, it was that draft day movie. Oh yeah, that was when it started and, so promising. And when then it turned with to him shit. and Jennifer Garner, it's like it's like it's like can we stop giving Kevin Costner, Leading who's like man. 65 years old, like lead like he could get Jennifer Garner? Like, <laughs> like come on now. <laughs> Fred, oh, wait a, a second. Um, Jim Lovell had a cameo in the movie as the captain of the Iwo Jima. So that's the ship that recovered the astronauts. It's pretty cool. Fred Hayes was the backup commander for Apollo 16 and was supposed to be the commander of Apollo 19. That got canceled. Poor guy. He continued with NASA and the space shuttle program. Which was the next phase, right? That was right? the next big mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. He played an important role as a test pilot. Very important role. He left the space program in 1979 and moved into the private sector at Grumman Air- Aerospace Corporation, retiring in 1996. He's still alive at age 83. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jack Swire was slated to be a crew member aboard the Apollo Soyuz test project. Wow. So the project became the first US Soviet joint space flight in 1975, which is a big fucking deal. Sure it is. Consider this this is the middle of the Cold War with two rivals not only just nuclearly 
nuclearly. <laughs> but also, they're in the, yeah, they're in the middle of a fucking Cold War. Anyway, he got caught up in the Apollo 15 stamp cover scandal. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. So here, this is super interesting. Basically, long and short, the three Apollo 15 astronauts wanted to make an extra buck. So they agreed to covertly take a bunch of commemorative postal coverage, which are those old fashioned oh, I see. Um, yeah. commemorative envelopes into, with into space stamps. with them. Yeah. So they could sell. This has been to the moon. This has been to the moon. That was their fucking hustle. Hey, which is a, you know. This, anyway. I'm sure they were being paid pretty well. I hope so. Well, apparently least. part but, of it was... Hey, there's no problem with the side hustle. Part of it was a potential, like, um, life... So apparently, like, astronauts had a really hard time finding good life insurance because they were involved in a really risky They were involved endeavor. in a job where there was a good chance they were so going to die. this was like their backup plan. <laughs> I don't know. It was anyway, anyway. Hey, um, but you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. So it was not only gonna be big bucks because these were commemorative items, but they were commemorative commemorative items that had been to the moon. <laughs> so anyway, uh, NASA found out about it. Super pissed. From what I can tell, like they didn't get. They were just like, like sued or criminal. They were just like, let's all learn from this. They were just don't do that again. They were just really fucking annoyed that they were trying to privately profit from this um but anyway swagger was somehow involved in the whole thing he initially lied about it then admitted it and his punishment was he was no longer involved in apollo soyuz so Mm. he uh he was he got pulled from the project for that he pursued a political career when he left NASA in 1977 and won his first race as a congressional representative for Colorado's 6th District in 1982. Unfortunately, that same year during the campaign, he was diagnosed with a malignant tumor in his right nasal passage. Mm. It was malignant, and um, he died a week before being sworn into office on December 27th, 1982 at age 51. That's young. It's very young. The man who never got German measles, Ken Mattingly, got his chance to go to the moon as one of the crew members aboard Apollo 16 in April 1973. Now, unfortunately for poor Ken, he was the guy left behind (laughs) while the other two guys (laughs) walked on the moon. They're like, like, we're going to make you feel the pain again. (laughs) But he did make his own history as being participating in one of only three deep spacewalks ever completed in history. That's crazy. And that, my friends, is the story of Apollo 13. And NASA, amongst other things. Oh, my God, so much shit. (laughs) Alex asked for the script, so I'm going to have to, like, send it to her. Send her all of that. Send her her the pictures. so much. Alex, you're going to get, like, a giant envelope. I just need to get your address. But, yes. Including one page that Jesse Pinkman sat on. Yes. So it's crinkled. We will sell those. Whoever, what, we'll take uh, them to the moon. Yes, we will take them to the moon, and uh, Abby can sell them on our, our merchandise site, which, which we haven't plugged in a while. I thought about that the other day. Oh yeah, that's true. Our merchandise site is on the internet no somewhere. <laughs> Abby will let you know. Just ask Abby. So if you want to buy things, I don't know a T-shirt. I know Do there are several T-shirts. Want. Do yes. whatever you want. Profit over whatever you want. We don't mind a hustle. No. 
we don't mind a hustle. But anyway, oh, that was this is like our mega this is our miracle. Second, stud. this is our second longest episode ever. What was our first longest? Uh, was the uh, crowd crush just recently? Oh, the love big co- parade. Yes. How long was that? I believe that clocked in at exactly two hours. Well, if we talk long enough, we'll get no, there. we're not going to do that. We've already talked way long enough for the. I don't, have a, I don't have a Christmas poem, so. But, um, a Mille Kulikimaka. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, yes. Isn't that, that how is, Yep, that is correct. Anyway, that's cultural appropriation. Merry Christmas. <laughs> happy holidays. Um, all, all the, all the, all the greats, all the hits, all, all the, the holidays. All the, all the feels. <laughs> all the feels. Get all the feels in there. Yes, I just, guys, I just drank 22 ounces of uh, Moravian Porter. What do you want from me? It is pretty good. It is really good. It's super drinkable. Yes, it is. That's the danger. And on that note. <laughs> so anyway, we, we thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are going to end this now. Yes, please. <laughs> Put me out of my misery. <laughs> well, the listeners. I'm thinking about the listeners, not you. But the listeners out of my misery. <laughs> yes, that too. <laughs> Don't get the meebles. <laughs> this has been another... Wait, hang on. That was... That was Apollo 13. Yes. Featuring Tom Hanks. <laughs> As BTK. <laughs> yes. No, but seriously. <laughs> that was Apollo 13. <laughs> this has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. Hey, Rachel. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>